For the past 2,000 years, Christians have been gathering in places like this and celebrating the good news. And the good news is not the stock market is risen, it is risen indeed. Nor is it the dollar is risen. Nor is it the gross domestic product is risen. The good news that has been proclaimed for 20 centuries now, which is the only hope that human beings have in times of tremendous hurt and tragedy and pain and suffering and even death. The good news is he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen? And we're going to look at one of those he is risen accounts in the scripture now. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 21. The New Testament book of John chapter 21. You'll find John 21 on page 769 of your church Bibles. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 14. And John 21 is also up on the screen. John 21 says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, well, throw out your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught, you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is God's word. Every fall, 
my mother makes a trip to Champaign. She stays for a couple of weeks in October. She, she thinks that our leaves up here are prettier than the leaves in Oklahoma. So she makes the drive up to see the leaves. And I believe to see her favorite son. <laughs> One year, she came, and she brought this with her. This is a green suitcase. This is the suitcase that I had when I was growing up. This was the suitcase that I had my clothes stuffed in when I would go to Grandma and Grandpa's in El Dorado, Kansas. This is the suitcase that we took our vacations with. But what was significant is not that she just brought me this suitcase, but, but it was what was inside the suitcase that was significant. <clears throat> I opened this up when I got it. And, well, I mean, there was just all of this stuff inside. I mean, this was like, this was like, this was like Randy Boltinghouse paraphernalia. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that if they ever have a Randy Boltinghouse museum, this is going to be there at that museum. This will be the only thing that's there in the museum. It's going to be very small, kind of like a doghouse. But, I mean, there's just some priceless stuff in here. For instance, this is, this was my, this was my treasured NFL-sanctioned Minnesota Vikings special sticker set. Yes, woo-hoo. I mean, <laughs> as you'll notice, I've only used three of the stickers because I didn't want to use up all of them in case I might need them for later, okay? And, and if 30 some odd years later, it's, it's not later yet, so I still have them. I have that there. I have, uh, oh my goodness, what's in here? Let's see here. Oh, I have the uh, temporary car tag of my very first car that my dad got me, that 1980 brand spanking new Chevy Monte Carlo. Oh, that was a cool car. And it, it's January 25th was the day I got it. It's a special anniversary I still keep on my calendar. <laughs> and, and, and then also I have this certificate of award certifying that Randy Boltinghouse is awarded this certificate of merit for outstanding accomplishment in, and it says, Overall outstanding eighth grade student. Not, not just outstanding eighth grade student, but overall outstanding eighth grade student. Given to me, and this will be in my doghouse museum. Um, I even have, I even have, I've got scores of tests and exams. Uh, I, I even have my ACT score. <laughs> that, I, that I took. I took my ACT score in December of 1979. I still have it. I, I wonder if anybody else still has theirs. I have mine, huh? 
Uh, it's a 21. It was harder back then. It was in Latin. Oh, yours wasn't. Okay. Twenty-one. No wonder Harvard didn't call. <laughs> you know. You know. Sometimes these scores uh, can define us, can't they? We let them define us. We 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 let them. We let them set the trajectory of our future, right? You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) And uh, when that happens, it no longer just becomes a piece of paper, does it? Uh, It becomes this. Chain. A chain that binds us in a chain that confines us. And, uh, you know, I've got this green suitcase. I pulled it out of the, uh, <laughs> out of the utility room, some out-of-the-way shelf in the utility room of our basement. I mean, Sarah won't let me keep this stuff on our coffee table. Uh, you know, she thinks the magazines are more interesting. She's probably right, again, and... So, you know, I keep this in an out-of-the-way place because, I, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, the, the award that I got in 1975, I, I mean, it's, I, I didn't put this on any resume. <laughs> it's meaningless now, right? It was, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a trophy that I excelled in something that's just kind of insignificant. Isn't that the way it is when we have our suitcases full of triumphs? We, we triumph in something that's really not that important. On the other hand, the things that we don't excel in, the 21s in our life, we kind of let them become these. And we let them bind us. And, uh, and I wonder if anybody here has a green suitcase full of... Low scores, maybe not low scores, blunders, mistakes, big stuff. You know, you weren't jaywalking. I mean, big stuff. And you've allowed these to just, you know, bind you. And why, to look at you coming in, you wouldn't see it. But but you've got that suitcase there and you've got these in there. Only the thing of it is, your suitcase is not tucked in the basement of your home. It's tucked away, hidden away somewhere in the basement of your heart. And you'd give anything to get rid of those chains. But for all that we look like on the outside, on the inside, we just feel like we're just imprisoned. And the reason why I read John chapter 21 is because we're going to look at the life of someone who had chains binding them in the basement of his heart. 
And then Jesus showed up and changed everything. Now, speaking of Jesus, uh, Jesus had sent the disciples ahead to Galilee. He told them to go there. He said he was going to meet up with them. So they went. And and Simon Peter's not one to twiddle his thumb. So, you know, he's going, look, (laughs) we can either sit here and go hungry or we can wait for Jesus while we fish. Let's go fishing. I'm going fishing. And the others said, all right, well, we're going to go fishing with you. So they went. Now, these guys did not get their fishing gear at the Bass Pro Shop. These guys were commercial fishermen. They're, you know, if we did a TV program on their life, it wouldn't be Field and Stream, you know, Angler's Digest. It wouldn't be that. It would be Micro's Dirty Jobs because it was a filthy, dirty, commercial, rough guy kind of work as they were hurling and heaving and hauling these water-soaked nets all night long, just so that they could get the catch to make the money by the fish that they would sell. And Peter didn't know much, but he knew how to fish, only not that night. Verse 3 says, that night they caught nothing. And as dawn came, an early morning, the sun broke over the horizon. The Bible says that Jesus stood on the shore. But they didn't realize it was Jesus. And this voice from the shore. Uh, Gentlemen, friends, hey, you haven't caught any fish, have you? Who is that wise guy? No. Well, why why don't you just just throw that net out on the right side? Who does he think he is? Just do it, Peter. It can't hurt. So they did. They hurled it one more time. And then as they began to haul it back, they noticed that that net was bubbling and boiling. But it wasn't because the water was boiling. It was because there was this huge catch, this this mother load of jumbo Galilean 153 jumbo-sized fish that were flipping and flopping at the surface of the water. It was incredible. And at that very moment, at that very moment, 153, uh, John, who is the disciple whom Jesus loved here, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the apostle John. He put two plus two together, came up with 153, and thought, well, it's the Lord. And, And the minute he said, it's the Lord, Peter puts on his outer coat, jumps into the water, and swims a hundred yards to shore. And, and uh, thanks, Peter, leaving us with all the li- heavy lifting. And they're with Jesus. And, and now let me tell you why uh, I believe that this is a true, literal, historical account. Uh, uh, first of all, just, just look at these verses again. The detail in these verses... Uh, you know, in verse 7, Peter, you know, he wrapped his outer garment around him when he found out it was Jesus, and he jumped into the water. I mean, who puts their clothes on and then jumps into the lake? I mean, that just, people just don't do that, you know? But, but so this, John's not, this is not a myth. I mean, ancient mythology never had that kind of detail. When you're reading the, the uh, Iliad, you, you never read about Achilles sitting around charcoal fire, scratching his ear, you know, eating fish. Uh, you don't have that much detail unless it was symbolic. And, and, but 
there's nothing symbolic here. This is just, a, and then 153 fish. People have tried to figure out why 153 fish? What kind of, well, the most obvious reason is because that's how many fish there were. There were 153 fish. They could count back then in the first century. That's why. And, and John says, he's keeping track, that it was the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I wish I had time to get into uh, when we consider the fact of Jesus' crucifixion and death, when we consider the fact that he was placed in a tomb, and when we, we consider the fact that on the third day the tomb was empty, Jesus' enemies attest to this. I mean, they didn't steal the body. I mean, if, if, they, if the enemies of Christ had stolen the body, then all they would have had to have done when the resurrection was proclaimed was simply produce the body. What you need to understand is that when the resurrection of Christ was proclaimed, it was not proclaimed a thousand miles away from ground zero. It was proclaimed around the block. Jesus died in Jerusalem. He was buried in Jerusalem. The empty tomb in Jerusalem. And then the appearances of Christ. Over the next 40 days, Jesus appeared to 515 people. 500 at one time. Now we have about 600 chairs set up here. So when I'm looking at the crowd here and looking at the dynamics. This would be the kind of dynamics of the number of people who would have seen not a ghost, not a hallucination, 500 people having the exact same hallucination. No, 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 no. We're talking a physical, tangible, resurrected body. That's what we're talking about. And, and we're not just talking about a, re, a resuscitated body. We're talking about a spirit-animated resurrection body. So that's going to make it different than the kind of physical body that we have. It's the kind of body that can appear. One that's trans-physical. One that, one that is able to appear. Uh, one that can disguise itself if it so chooses but one that people saw and touched. Jesus appeared to, to believers. He appeared to doubters. He appeared to groups. He appeared to individuals. He appeared indoors. He appeared outdoors. He appeared at night. He appeared in broad daylight. I mean, over 40 days. So you consider the, the, the fact of his death, the fact of, of the burial in the tomb, the fact of the empty tomb, the a number of appearances that took place over 40 days, and then the dramatic change in the lives of the disciples. I'm talking changes that would lead them to go to their deaths. Now, people might die for what they believe to be the truth, but who dies for what they know to be a deception or a lie? I mean, what other conclusion can we come to other than what John says? It is the Lord. Is the Lord. Jesus showing up in an unexpected place. You know, if this, if this were mythology, we would expect Jesus to show up right smack dab in the temple. I don't say that, do we? An unexpected place. A, a, a Mike Rose, dirty jobs kind of place. That's where he shows up. 
Jesus appears in unexpected places. And thus leading the question, so what? Okay, no way, he's alive. So what? Oh, well, that's what we're going to find out here. Jesus invited the disciples to breakfast. He had had breakfast ready. He had this charcoal fire and a fish and bread. He said, bring what you have. And, and, you know, and, and they had a hungry man's breakfast. When Jesus cooks, it's all you can eat. And these guys had been famished all night having no luck and here they come and they are just gorging and devouring themselves and and there they are sitting around the fire pulling out you know their toothpicks and just you know you have that full feeling and suddenly verse 15 when they had finished eating Jesus said to Simon Peter Simon son of John his formal name Do you truly love me more than these? All of a sudden there was silence. Eyes are lifted. Talk about Peter being on the spot. Uh, yes, Lord. You, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. I just wonder if maybe one of the disciples, just maybe to ease the intensity, uh, hey, uh, I got last dibs on that fish, okay? I got last dibs on that fish. Peter stares into the charcoal, and once again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. I just wonder if it, at this time, you know, Nathaniel kind of pops up and says, look, we got some of this extra fish. Let's go ahead and take it to the market. We can sell it, make some money. And Peter's, all right, I'll help. He turns, Simon, son of John. Peter freezes. He turns Jesus' eyes have him locked on. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And the Bible says Peter was hurt. It was like, it was like a knife going through his heart. Or was it a scalpel? Cutting away the chains of a cancerous past Lord Lord you know you know everything you know you know what's in my heart you know everything you know my thoughts you know my motives I mean there's nothing you don't know you know everything and you know that I love you. He was hurt. Jesus said, feed my sheep. What's that all about? Well, you know. <laughs> and if you've read about 
Peter's life. You know what happened the night before Jesus was crucified. You know that Peter was there, there at the, the Passover supper as Jesus was breaking the bread and talking about the cup, the new covenant of his blood poured out for you and for many for the remission of sins. And, and, and then he started talking about how they would strike the shepherd and the sheep would scatter. And, and, and the disciples said, we're not going to abandon you, Lord. We're not going to leave you. And Peter was like, he was like boasting even more. He, he was saying, you know, I am ready to go to prison for you. I am ready to go to death for you. Even if all of these other guys leave you, Lord, I won't leave you. And you know what happened later that night, don't you? Three denials with profanity. He claimed he didn't even know Jesus had no association with him. Talk about a colossal failure. Why did he do that? He said, well, because he was afraid. No, we got to go deeper than that. Because, because remember at the Garden of Gethsemane, remember? When the guards came, Peter was the one who unsheathed his sword. Peter was the one who was swinging away. Peter was the one who hacked the ear off of that servant named Malchus. And then Jesus healed the servant and told Peter to sheathe his swords. So we can't just say, well, he, 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 you know, he chickened out. Because he was the one who was armed and he was ready to go. I think there's something deeper than that. I think there's something deeper going on. I think it's because Peter had this image of the kind of Messiah that he thought Jesus should be. Peter had this Home Depot theology. Jesus, you can do it. We can help. <laughs> Amen. You see, Peter, Peter's problem was that he wanted Jesus to be a success. Peter wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome and set up a political earthly kingdom centered in Jerusalem. He wanted Jesus to be the Messiah that he thought Jesus should be. And thus, Peter wanted to be the kind of disciple that he thought a Messiah should have. You know what the problem was, though? The problem was Jesus doesn't need Peter's help. Peter's ready to keep Jesus from the cross but he won't go with Jesus to the cross. Because you see, the cross is for failed messiahs. And Peter's not going to have any of that. And that very night before the crucifixion, he denied him three times. With profanity. Talk about a failure. Talk about trying to stuff a green suitcase full of chains that... That, that you just can't latch shut. The latches break. There's too many of them. There's so many of them. And we do that when we concoct an image of the kind of Messiah we think Jesus should be. You know, people say, you know, I like to think of Jesus as, and we just kind of concoct this. Or in my mind, I think God should, and we have this image by which then we just evaluate life. And it's like, no, wait a minute. Can you imagine how silly it would be if at my funeral, you know, my casket's here and, and then we have an open microphone and people are, have the sharing and reflection time and, and, and people get up and they reflect on my life and they say things like, well, you know, to me, I like to think of Randy as someone who is six foot, three inches tall, 210 pounds, 44 inch chest, you know, dashing, muscular, scratch golfer. 
scored a 36 on his ACT. Well, you know, good for you, but that's not the real me. And the real, the real Jesus did not need Peter to die for him. The real Jesus needed to die for Peter and Peter's sins and Peter's failures and Peter's chains. And so around the fireplace, Jesus recreates the scene of the denials recreates the setting. Only now it's not three denials, it's three questions and three affirmations of love. And it's the same question, isn't it? Do you love me? You see, you see notice Jesus didn't say, now do you promise you're never gonna blow it again? Do you promise you're never gonna deny me? No, he gets to the, he gets to the sin behind the sin. Because there's, a, there's, there's always the sin, but then there's the sin behind the sin. And the sin behind the sin is really much, pretty much always the same. I love something else or someone else more than Jesus. And so Peter, Jesus just has three, one question for him. Not to rub salt in his wounds, but to restore him. So that Peter would know once and for all that it's, it, Peter, this is why I died for you. I died for those denials. And the real Jesus he needs is not some concocted imaginary Messiah, but the real Messiah, the Jesus whose way to the cross is the way of God's grace, especially for failures. And yes, it hurt. It hurt. It always hurts. It always hurts to have your chains broken because these chains then become wrapped around our lives and our hearts and they confine us and, and, and they, we can't get them off. And I just wonder how many people come here today thinking, all right, well, I'm here and I've got these chains on me and I... All right, I'm just going to settle for being kind of a, you know, there's Olympian-style believers, major league-style believers, and, and then, then there's, there's, there's this, this, these minor league believers and these single-A or Texas league believers. This is just what, I'm just going to settle for that. At least I'm just going to, I'm just, at least I'm going to come and I'll just be here and we'll just, you know, we, we just, we end up settling. And, and settling for, well, I can just still kind of, kind of be religious even with these chains on it. And it's, Sad, and you know what you look like. You know, you know what it is. Let me let, let me show you here. <laughs> Life is this 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 balance beam. Don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> and, and so we we get, we get on this beam, and you know we we fall or we make mistakes or we blunder, and then you know we we get back up, but then we're gonna we've got these chains on us, and we decide we're not gonna. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna play it safe now. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm not going to risk. I'm just going to, you know, and I'm, I'm not going to take any chances, and I'm, I'm going to be living in self-protection mode, you know, and, 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 and this, is, this is what we end up looking like, you know. We just kind of end up saying, okay, I'm just going to play it safe here, and I'm just going to straddle this thing, and I'm just going to just hang on, you know, <laughs> hang on tight, and I'm going to play it safe, and I'm going to, and I'm going to make my kids wear helmets everywhere they go. And I'm going to put a GPS on their ankles. And 
I'm just not going to take any risks, and I'll, I'll come to church, and I'll just, but I'm just going to just, just going to kind of live in self-protection mode, and, and I, you're going to do that for the rest of your life, and this is what you look like, and, and then you, you think, okay, Lord, my biggest wish would be that if I could just die in my sleep, and then go to heaven, and while I'm sleeping, I'll just have a dream of heaven, and I'll just, you know, die in my sleep and then, you know, kind of leave the, this balance beam of life that I've been playing it safe and then, right? And what happens next when they're off the balance beam? Stand before the judge and after that routine, <laughs> what is that? You, I mean, can you imagine that on the Olympics? You imagine that? That kind of routine on the Olympics, and then after that. What's the judge supposed to put on the card? And yet that's what so many of us settle for. We settle for a life where I'm just going to be hunker down, play it safe, not take any risks, not try to upset the, I'm just going to just kind of, when Jesus says, no, I'm not done with you. Feed my sheep. I have work for you to do. And that's what he's telling Peter. In fact, I mean, you think that what happened in the past disqualifies you. No, it qualifies you. Because I can, you know, I can th- can't think of anything better, Peter, than to recruit someone with a past like yours. And so Jesus says to Peter, and I believe he's saying to us, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. I have, I have work for you. Go to Salt and Light. Go to Restoration Urban Ministries. Go to Real Life Teen Moms. Go see Tim Johnson with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Oh, you know what? Forget the program stuff. Just invite someone over to your home for dinner because, I mean, that's what Jesus did with the disciples. In in that culture, having a meal is no small thing. It means I want community with you. That would be the greatest act of ministry for many of us to go out in our neighborhoods just to have someone over for coffee, for a meal. I'm not done with you, Peter. I'm not done with you. And in fact, let me tell you, here's what's going to happen. When you were younger, you dressed yourself where you wanted. But when you were old, you're going to stretch out your hands. And that's a word picture for crucifixion. And you're going to be led where you don't want to go. That's what he tells them. That's your life. Right there, Jesus says to Peter. And that's what happened to Peter. Church history tells us he was crucified. But you know what? Listen, when you're standing in the presence of a resurrected king who tells you, I'm the chain breaker. I'm the king at breaking the past and using broken people for my glory and for their good. And then then he says, and they're going to crucify you. You know, you're okay with that because you realize they might kill you, but they can't hurt you. 
You hear what I'm saying? Jesus, Jesus appears in unexpected places to break the chains of the past so that ultimately we can love him by serving others. I'll ask it one more time. Does anybody here have any chains? Do you? Here's the deal for today. The deal for today, Jesus says, you bring me your chains and I'll feed you a meal. And that's what we're going to do in communion. You thought you came to a church service today. No, no, no. You're around the campfire. You're around the charcoal fire. And it's you and Jesus with your brokenness and your past. And he's got one question. It's just a yes, no question. Do you love me? Well, give me your chains. And I want to give you an opportunity at least to just, you know, enact this and we're going to take communion here in just a moment, and maybe you've, I don't know what your chains are. Maybe you want to scribble them on the inside of this paper and then fold it up or tear it up and just put it in the box. Or at least, you know, think about what those chains mean, and as you come up and you receive communion, just put it in the box and take, take the meal. A meal that symbolizes the grace of Jesus Christ who shows up in unexpected places to break our chains so that we can love him by serving others. A meal for chains, you're not going to get a better deal today than that or ever. Fred and Cheryl were a married couple and uh, decades ago they went to Haiti to pick up Addie a five-year-old child that they adopted. Addie's parents died in a traffic accident. and As Addie walked across the tarmac to board the plane, this tiny orphan reached up and slipped her hands into the hands of her new parents whom she had just met. And that evening, they arrived back in their home in Arizona. Fred and Cheryl and their two sons Thatcher and Graham, and now Addie, the five of them had their first meal together. It was a platter of pork chops and potatoes, and after the first serving, the two teenage boys, they kept refilling their plates, and soon the pork chops had disappeared, and, and the potatoes were gone, and Addie had never seen so much food before ever in her life, and she had never seen so much food disappear so quickly before in her life, and her eyes were like saucers as she saw her two new brothers, Thatcher and Graham, satisfy their ravenous appetites. It was then that, that Fred and Cheryl kind of noticed that something was wrong with the dynamic. Something, something was wrong. Was it agitation? Was it bewilder, bewilderment? Was it insecurity? Cheryl guessed that it was the disappearing food. Cheryl figured that because Addie had grown up hungry... When food was gone from the table, she might be thinking that, that it would be a day or more before there was going to be more to eat. And she was exactly right. Cheryl was right. And so she got up quickly from the table and she took the hand of that five-year-old precious girl and she led her to the bread drawer and she pulled it out, showing her a backup of three loaves. And then she took her to the refrigerator and opened the door and she showed her the bottles of milk and orange juice and the fresh vegetables and the jars of jelly and jam and peanut butter, a carton of eggs, a package of bacon. 
And then she took her to the pantry with its bins of, of potatoes and onions and squash and the shelves of the canned goods and the tomatoes and the peaches and the pickles. And she opened the freezer and she showed Addie three or four chickens and packages of fish and two cartons of ice cream. All the while, she was assuring Addie that there was a lot of food in the house. And no matter how much Thatcher and Graham ate and how fast they ate it, There was so much more where that came from. She wanted to assure her five-year-old daughter that she would never go hungry again. Friends, Jesus stands here and he says, come and eat. Come and drink. I'm never going to run out of food. Ever. My grace is abundant. You will never consume it all. There's more than you'll ever know. Come. Come.